Welcome to Fast Pass to the Past, the Theme Park History Podcast, Episode 8. Hello, I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a huge history nerd, a former Disneyland cast member, and a current annual pass holder at both Disneyland and Universal Studios Hollywood. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and for bearing with me as I got a little bit behind on episodes. I've been studying for the GRE, which was pretty rough. Luckily, I'm on the finish line with that, and I can't wait to bring you more of your favorite theme park trivia and magic more frequently. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the Disneyland archives and take a look at one of the many lost lands of Disneyland. In the first part of our Lost Land series, we'll be talking about Discovery Bay, the lost flagship land of the Disney Empire that never even made it to construction. So without further ado, let's take a look into the lost land that never graced the page of a theme park map despite being announced and showcased to the world. We'll also discuss why the land of mythical science fiction never came to fruition and how it may have came down to everyone's favorite sci-fi franchise. that I'm not alone in being fascinated by closed attractions, forgotten announcements, and especially by plans that never made it off the drawing board. This is one of those ill-fated plans. Not unlike the villain theme park and such that's been making the rounds on the internet lately. However, unlike the concept fraught with uncertainties and speculation, Disneyland's Discovery Bay was officially announced to the Disney-loving public. Why then did it never grace the elusive theme park map? Today we'll explore the tumultuous tale leading up to its design, what this magnificent land would have contained, and how it settled down in only diehard fan memories. So hold on tight as we uncover the sunken mysteries of what would have been Discovery Bay. In 1970, Walt Disney Imagineers officially announced a stunning new land to join Disneyland 7, an extension of Walt's love of Americana and the impossible fantasy elements that only Disney Imagineers could create. Discovery Bay would have been the flagship land of Disney's theme park empire. This gorgeous, thoughtful, brilliant concept of Discovery Bay would have easily been one of the strongest lands at any Disney park, even today. I'm looking at you, Cars Land and Star Wars Land. In fact, Discovery Bay would have stood in basically the same area as Star Wars Land will currently stand. Well, we'll we'll stand. After Walt's death in 1966, some, even those inside the company, but especially those vultures outside the company, wondered if the Walt Disney Company could continue at all. We talked about this quite a few times on the podcast. After all, at this time, Walt was the Disney brand. I mean, who was Mickey anyway? It was all about Walt. A generation of Americans had grown up with Walt Disney, seeing his face on television during specials such as ABC's Wonderful World of Disney, hearing him in the news, especially with the somewhat recent announcement of Disney World, and watching his name flash before their favorite motion pictures. The question on everybody's lips, what was the Walt Disney Company without Walt Disney? The lack of direction was evident even in Walt's original Magic Kingdom, Disneyland. The gleaming white plantation house exterior that was to become the haunted mansion we know and love was still sitting empty since 1963. Ironically, the same two men who shaped the haunted mansion would shape the ill-fated Discovery Bay as well. The first, 
Claude Coates was a legendary artist and designer. He was part of the Walt Disney family from even the earliest shorts and even worked on Snow White, the first animated feature. However, the animated turn engineer truly found his footing at Disneyland. He was the one that came up with many of the unfathomable special effects present in the Haunted Mansion, as well as its signature ominous tone and narrative-free storytelling, which was a huge departure from Snow White and the other classic Fantasyland dark rides. Mark Davis, equally renowned and celebrated Imagineer, whose credits included many famed anime characters and the auto-animatronic figures on Jungle Cruise and Enchanted Tiki Room. Many may know him as the spearhead behind Disneyland's 10-minute-long tribute, Pirates of the Caribbean. However, Coates and Davis didn't always agree. Davis was a character-driven man who loved plot-focused attractions filled with animatronics and light-hearted gags. His influence is shown bright in the second half of the mansion. He is most known for the Hatbox Ghost, the Hitchhiking Ghost, and all of those fun cemetery characters that are just, they just make the whole experience so fun. And that's kind of what Davis was all about. Ultimately, the haunted mansion that ended up opening in 1969, three years after Walt's death, was a clever combination of the styles of both men. And in 1970, just a year after the haunted mansion opened, a new Imagineer joined the team. Fresh out of college, the young man was Tony Baxter. He worked at Disneyland part-time throughout high school, working his way up from an ice cream scoop position to a ride operator on the park's submarine voyage. For a final project in a college design course, Baxter had designed a Mary Poppins-themed ride for Disneyland, and that would have been so awesome! A few informal connections later, he got the plans to veteran Imagineers Coates and Davis, and Baxter was in. After the small fact of switching college to become Imagineer, Luckily, his first task was right up his alley, transferring his beloved Disneyland subs over to Walt Disney World and redesigning them in the style of 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea with Coates, who was his mentor. And fun fact, Baxter was actually pretty obsessed with 2,000 Leagues of the Sea. That also plays in Discovery Bay as well. <laughs> he returned to Disneyland in 1971 after the opening of Walt Disney World, ready for his next project. Baxter was already more than an apprentice at this point. He represented a new generation of Disney Imagineers, not only in that he was fresh out of college and filled with ideals, but he had never been an animator and possibly had only met Walt in passing, which was pretty unusual for an Imagineer at the time. He had a totally different perspective. He was a former ride operator and a child who had grown up with Disneyland. After all, he was only eight when the park opened. However, to thoroughly explain the origins of the Discovery Bay idea, we can't just explain the minds behind it. We have to explain how the idea even came to be. To glean that, we are going to have to go down the rabbit hole into yet another theme park concept that never made it on the map, Thunder Mesa. For a split second, let's go all the way across the country to Florida. Magic Kingdom opened, as you all know, in 1971 with a large and very obnoxious and obvious plot of land that was left open in Frontierland in the northwest corner of the park. Of course, Mark Davis had elaborate plans to build a whole new land here. The massive Thunder Mesa complex would have contained two distinct attractions. 
both wrapped around in the desert setting. One was the Magic Kingdom's answer to pirates. It was a story-driven flume attraction that was filled with cowboys, guns, and Wild West adventure. So, probably, like, Splash Mountain with cowboys. The attraction was to be called Western River Expedition. Imagineers believed pirates would bore Florida visitors. You have to realize that the theme park at this time was super locally driven. The people going to Disneyland were mostly from the Anaheim area, or LA area, and the people going to Florida, the Florida theme park, they envisioned would most likely be Floridians. So they thought that Pirates was a bit too, I don't know, like, people knew about them too much. It was part of the lore. I mean, even I went to school in Florida, and we studied it in elementary school. However, you may realize that Walt Disney World does have a Pirates attraction now, and that's because they were wrong. Um... <laughs> People realized that the Magic Kingdom was simply an enlarged version of Walt's original Magic Kingdom, Disneyland. Just one major signature attraction was missing. Pirates. And its absence was sorely felt. Guest relations was bombarded by early Disney Parks fanatics, wondering where it was and when it will open. In response, Disney hastily constructed the very short and lackluster version that lays in Thunder Mesa's place at Walt Disney World today. However, the idea of a true e-ticket Frontierland attraction remained heavy on the Imagineers' minds, as the original Frontierland failed to attract new audiences. podcast I feel like I tend to kind of harp on the Tomorrowland problem or so-called Tomorrowland problem how the very idea of Tomorrowland requires constant change however Tomorrowland isn't really the only Disneyland land with a problem Walt once said that the Disneyland will never be completed it will continue to grow as long as there's imagination left in the world and yes, that's a quote from Walt himself, although I most know it from the fireworks show for the 60th anniversary of Disneyland. But regardless of where it's from, what he says is absolutely true. We've seen Disney change time and time again with changing narratives and overlays of Disneyland's original lands. With the Tiki themed and then later Indiana Jones Adventureland expansions in the 50s and 90s, with Fantasyland switch from a fair to a castle and in Tomorrowland's retro redo in the 1960s. However, at this point in the narrative, the old Frontierland in Walt's original Magic Kingdom was in desperate need of an update. The somewhat recent additions of Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion were originally intended to be part of this land, but they were annexed into their own land, which we know as New Orleans Square, so Frontierland was left with only one attraction, a Walt original called The Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland. It had been groundbreaking during its 1950s debut, but public interest and actual ride guests had waned, not just in the sense of the one ride, but in Frontierland in general. When Disneyland was first built in 1955, the concept of the American frontier was at the forefront of popular culture. I was a television major in college, and I even recall watching David Crockett and the Lone Ranger. Both had reunited the television screen at this time. Cowboys and Indians was the choice backyard game for young children. And it seemed like the West had 
taken upon our soul in a way that nothing else really could, as Americans, at least. And, yeah, I mean, it kind of fit when he originally built the park. It was just the same as Adventureland or Fantasyland, something that would always be in our hearts and in our ideals. However, <laughs> by the 1970s, cowboys and Indians just wasn't all that cool. But the Imagineers were faced with a major hurdle. Yes, they could update fantasy and Adventureland with society's new views, but how were they supposed to save a land where people were bored with the frontier? I mean, that was kind of in the name. Luckily for them, they came up with a solution. Give it to the youngest person on the staff, which at the time was Tony Baxter. Barely 25, Baxter was tasked with making Frontierland relevant again, or as I like to say, cool again. Hence the creation of a beloved mixture of sci-fi and the past, which would have been Discovery Bay. Originally intended to be a mere expansion within Frontierland, Discovery Bay eventually developed into a land all its own, at least on paper. Baxter found inspiration in the shelved project of his predecessor Davis's Magic Kingdom Thunder Mesa. During the beginning of the throw-wide craze of the early 1970s, Tony Baxter pitched his idea of a runaway mine train attraction to Disney executives. Relying on a detailed backstory, Bank Thunder Mountain Railroad provided just the rollercoaster-type thrill attraction that the park executives were interested in building. Taking some story cues from the original Thunder Mesa, Baxter created an immersive experience with animatronics, including a friendly billy goat and scenic Frontierland scenery. It was actually a lot cheaper than Davis's expensive Thunder Mesa show building. The attraction was greenlit for both Disneyland and Disney World by Parks Executives, and construction began in January 1979. The roller coaster was the first attraction in Disney World to be designed by a computer, which allowed Imagineers to create a much smoother ride. Thunder Mountain originally opened to the public on September 23, 1980, and it had its grandiose opening day on November of that year. However, Discovery Bay, which was the land that was supposed to be around Thunder Mountain, was nowhere to be found. So, let's talk about what happened. But before we talk about why it didn't happen, let's talk about what would have happened if it happened. The plaque positioned over Disneyland's entry tunnel says... Here you leave today and into the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. And in the brand new Discovery Bay, you are going to be able to do all three at once. Discovery Bay was officially announced via memo in October of 1976. A scale model of the park expansion was then built and displayed inside the preview center on Main Street USA that same year, which wasn't too far away from that beloved park. It was official. Tony Baxter's Discovery Bay would become the eighth land at Disneyland Park in California. Thunder Mountain was envisioned to be the transitory gateway. Built on the edge of the quiet and museum-esque old frontier land, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and its large red peaks represented a land of opportunity. The Gold Rush. 
For guests, it was the intended gateway to Discovery Bay, the land that was a mix of fantasy and history, which is my favorite. After all, the story goes, the miners who struck the motherlode inside Thunder Mountain won't just stay in sleepy Frontierland. I mean, gosh. They'll pack up their wagons and continue their drive west through the gold rush. And eventually, they'd make it to the coast. Their guests would be treated to a fourth Rivers of America port. I know, it's crazy. It was meant to resemble the city of San Francisco from roughly 1860 to 1880, when, during the California Gold Rush, it was called the Paris of the West. But this is way more than just a historical recreation of the city. In what would have been Discovery Bay, you'd have found the epitome of Disney's balance between reality and fantasy. In this version of San Francisco, the gold had drawn international adventurers, explorers, thinkers, and designers to create a gold and browns bay of astounding architecture, cultural meddling, and technological marvels that we today may call steampunk. Not unlike Disneyland Paris's 1980s Tomorrowland, if you've had the chance to go over to France. Alongside the river, the classic sailing ship Columbia, which we all know and love, would be docked at a port full of crates and nets, a cleverly disguised children's play area, with a gangplank leaning up to the ship's deck for exploration. Next to the riverbank would be the Chinatown area. I know what you're thinking. Disneyland does have a Chinatown area. Well, that's actually Disney California Adventure. And yes, I feel like they probably took some plans from this. So this was way before DCA or Pacific War. But early drafts of Discovery Bay call it a shooting gallery attraction kind of over here. It's an unusual firework factory. And but later iterations cast it as an interactive dark ride as riders launch pinwheels, sparklers, and firecrackers along the factory's assembly line. And I can't help but wonder if this ride technology kind of gave way to Buzz Lightyear's two iterations on both coasts. Visibly docked out in the Rivers of America is a 200-foot-long recreation of the iconic Natalia submarine, as designed by Harper Gulf for the 1954 film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Ascending down a spiral staircase at the water's edge, you can enter the Park Natalis for a walkthrough of the film's most famous scenes, which apparently included a run-on with a real menacing squid. Guests aboard the Natalis would also find the blueprints for the fantastic power structures that would power Discovery Bay, tying the Vernon universe to Disneyland's new area, and in some descriptions of the land, a simulator ride, which was actually before Star Tours happened through Nemo's nautical world called Captain Nemo's Adventure. The Natalis would also be home to a luxurious, full-service restaurant in the Summerine's Grand Salon, and I can't help but wonder if this would have been competing with Blue Bayou. <laughs> Somewhat farther away from the waterway, you kind of enter an early Victorian high-society port of elaborate dance halls, exteriors, plush chest lounges, crystal chandeliers, and more old disguising actual merchandise locations selling artisan crafts, among other Mickey Mouse ears. Perhaps the attraction Disney fans would most like to have seen was Professor Marvel's Gallery of Wonders. 
This one-of-a-kind attraction was featured in a revolving theater, which was similar to Carousel of Progress, which had just relocated to Walt Disney World. It would star an innovator and explorer named Professor Marvel, who would introduce his menagerie of unbelievable animals, experiments, and inventions during the magical journey. Perhaps his most astounding find was his pet dragon, which faithfully sits on his shoulder as he recounts the magical journeys he's had. Just outside the town, along a grassy hill, would stand the Western Balloon Ascent, a Skyway-style attraction, with guests suspended below hot air balloons to lift up and over Discovery Bay, with flights to the nearby Dumbo Circus Land, which we're going to talk about later in another podcast, another Lost Lands podcast. Anyway, the icon of the streets was perhaps all of Discovery Bay, actually, was a massive Hyperion airship which was docked in an astounding mechanical hangar at the water's edge. The Hyperion acted as a grand entry to the land's signature attraction, the island at the top of the world. The mysterious e-ticket would have been themed to Disney's 1974 adventure film of the same name, and would offer brave adventurers a trip aboard a fantastic flying machine to an island of paradise located at the top of the world. And we don't know that much about this ride. I wish we did. All the plans are so secretive and it never ended up being built, but I can't help but wonder if it would have been like soaring or a jungle cruise. And I just, I mean, we'll never know. And the best part is that was not all. I know it may be hard to imagine all of this fitting into a relatively small area of Disneyland, especially when Star Wars Land is going there and it only has two rides. However, there was even a Phase 2 planned for Discovery Bay before it even started construction. Two roller coasters were planned for the area. The first, the Smart Gap Coaster, would have been a family-sized compact coaster like Gadget Go Coaster or the Barnstormer in Walt Disney World. It was kind of going to be wrapped around tremendous gold towers, pulsing with Tesla coil electric sparks. That would have been so cool. The second roller coaster was called the Tower. While less is known about the Tower, it apparently would have included a roller coaster car being dragged up a spiral lift hill via magnetism before a reverse magnetic polarity sent it free falling backwards down a new path through the corkscrew. That seems terrifying. So, glad that didn't happen. Beyond the Hyperion's hangar stood a towering, dormant volcanic mountain with bubbling waterfalls. This craggly peak would disguise a new e-ticket for the land based on H.G. Wells' time machine called the Voyage Through Time. Alternatively, some concept art signals that the mountain might have been home to an indoor-outdoor boat attraction called the Lost World, full of dinosaurs and prehistoric peril. Looking at the concept art, this may have been similar to nearby Universal's current Jurassic Park attraction. I know this all sounds amazing, and I know several Disney fans would have been even more excited for this land than Star Wars land. However, Discovery Bay never opened on the shores of the Rivers of America, leaving the ports to just be three. And uh, Star Wars land and Star Wars may have even been part of the reason why. Today, fans often express their frustration at Disney's apparent lack of originality. 
Walt Disney Imagineering seems to only greenlight projects that are tied to a proven box office success. Star Wars Land, Toy Story Land, Pixar Pier, and Cars Land, all based on successful franchises. Most present-day creative endeavors in the parks today are, perhaps rightly, tied to film franchises that are easy to market and come with a built-in fan base and merchandise sales. Don't misunderstand, that is not how Disney operated in the 1970s, the same decade it bought Country Fair Jamboree, Space Mountain, and Big Thunder Mountain. However, one major selling point for the Discovery Bay concept was the release of Disney's Island at the Top of the World, a harrowing family adventure film that would have served as artistic inspiration for Discovery Bay and had been the focus of the land's e-ticket attraction. However, the film really bombed at the box office. Like, it was, it was bad. And lukewarm reviews didn't help either. So that kind of cool Disney executive's enthusiasm for the Discovery Bay project. While the land didn't need a runaway box office success to justify its construction like we might picture today, a very clear box office failure certainly weighed against Discovery Bay's existence. While this alone might have not sealed the land's fate, it was a strike that weakened Discovery Bay at its foundation. I mean, there was basically two rides in the original concept, and one of them was based on this movie. Like we said, Discovery Bay was officially announced, with a scale model and concept art, just like Pandora, the world of Avatar, or Cars Land. But as the 1970s carried on, priorities began to change at the Walt Disney Company. As the end of the decade neared, Disney diverted its attention to two massive projects, Walt Disney World's Epcot Center and the brand new Tokyo Disneyland in Japan. Manpower and creative talents were absorbed by the two projects, and after the box office failure of Island at the Top of the World, Discovery Bay was simply the easiest project to let fall through the cracks. It was the first time a project was announced by Imagineering and not constructed, officially at least. However, it was not the only time, and we'll talk about a lot more of these in our Lost Lands of Disneyland series. In the 1990s, Disney, in their haste to create a resort complex that included hotels and multiple theme parks at Disneyland, announced both Westcott, which would have been a copy of Florida's Epcot Park, and an insane complex called Disney Sea in Long Beach, neither of which happened. The failure of Island at the Top of the World might have changed filmmakers' tastes, too, which consequently changed the kind of movies that major studios filmed. As a result, fantasy movies became a lot less frequent. The year after Discovery Bay's announcement saw the debut of, get this, Star Wars, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The era of adventure films, dinosaurs, submarines, and time travel was absurd by the space craze as gritty interstellar sci-fi became the taste of the public. And with it, several years later came Star Tours. It utilized the technology originally envisioned for Discovery Bay's 20,000 Leagues attraction. Ironically enough, the plot of land Discovery Bay would have been built on remained vacant for the better part of 40 years. That is, until now, as construction has begun on a full new land based on, 
you guessed it, Star Wars. It's certainly full circle. The premiere of Star Wars in the 1970s made Discovery Bay obsolete, and that 40 years later, Star Wars would take its four-fetted seat in Disneyland and become Faithland. <laughs> However, they say that no good ideas die at Disney. Even though Discovery Bay never made it to the Disneyland Park, the concept, plans, and ideals of Discovery Bay fractured and spread across the globe, sewn into projects at various Disney parks and resorts around the world. The single element of Discovery Bay to survive was Big Thunder Mountain, which was selected to become the signature ride of Frontierland and the replacement for the mine train through Nature's Wonderland. It opened in 1979, about when Discovery Bay, including Big Thunder, was meant to be completed. The ride really works effortlessly in the kind of existing 1960s dusty frontier town narrative of Frontierland. However, Disney's Big Thunder Mountain even retains the more fantastical hoodoo formations and forest setting, which was meant to tie the ride to the more fantasy-oriented Discovery Bay, which is obviously not there. <laughs> But some other elements did survive. If, well, let's think Epcot. You remember that wizard and his pet dragon? Hmm. <laughs> well, he ended up in a new home at Epcot. And are you ready to freak out? When Tony Baxter was moved off the land pavilion due to a change in sponsor... He was instead assigned to the pavilion next door, where sponsor Kodak requested something imaginative. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart. So just a few years after they would appear in Discovery Bay, the thoughtful professor and his dragon were recast as Dreamfinder and Figment in Journey into Imagination. Unfortunately, this too has been closed. Although Discovery Bay's figment still appears on so much merchandise. I mean, even last year during the Flower and Gardens Festival, you would have thought that he was the main attraction. Tony Baxter and several of his beloved Discovery Bay concepts also found its unlikely home in Perry. Tony Baxter was asked to be the executive producer of Disneyland Paris, given creative control over the design of the park. Baxter went above and beyond, developing entirely new versions of classic Disney rides, including a space mountain with a roller coaster kind of loop in it. And he also infused European details to develop what is easily the most beautiful, detailed, and romantic Disney park on Earth. Trust me, I was there in October and it was incredible. Instead of Tomorrowland, Disneyland Paris contains an equivalent land called Discoveryland. Yep. Instead of space-age architecture and white and silver and blue color patterns, Discoveryland is meant to be a fantasy version of the future, as it was envisioned by European thinkers and visionaries, like Jules Verne and Leonardo da Vinci. The result is, as you guessed it, steampunk version of Tomorrowland, painted in bronze and copper, with churning lagoons, fantasy illusions, organic rock work, and even... Most impressively, the airship Hyperion docked and floating above guests. Ironically enough, elements from Disneyland Paris's Tomorrowland that were inspired by Discoveryland ended up back at Disneyland. 
and the unsuccessful revamp of New Tomorrowland in 1998. It was really Discoveryland in paint only. Alongside Paris's Discoveryland, Mysterious Island at Tokyo Disney Sea is the other Disney Park land dedicated to the fantasy works of Jules Verne, and it might even do it better than Discoveryland does. It is, of course, after all, the most critically acclaimed theme park on Earth, and if you haven't been to Disney Sea, who are you? Just kidding, I haven't been, but I am going in April officially. Despite elements from Discovery Land landing around the world during the past 40 years, I have to say that I'm bummed that Star Wars Land is moving in this earmarked land. Discovery Bay would have been stunning, and it would have fit right alongside the other lands in the park. Well, Star Wars is, frankly, it's a little harder to reconcile. If fans still clamor for a land almost 40 years after its initial announcement, it must be pretty near timeless. And that's how our land at Disneyland should be. Not necessarily tied to a movie, no matter how successful or enduring the film may be. I mean, we all know what happened to Bug's life. <laughs> I know that many of you will disagree with me, and that's okay. Go ahead and send me an email at fastpastthepast at gmail.com, and we can argue like everyone else on the internet. Next week, join us for the second iteration in our Lost Land series, Holiday Land where we'll discuss the short-lived land of Disneyland that was never truly even open to the public. Clocking in at nine acres of open space where one could drink beer, yes, beer, play softball, and throw horseshoes, we'll take a gander at this once seemingly strange addition to Walt's original Magic Kingdom. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed our new series, Lost Lands, and this short look into what would have been an incredible land. Email me again at fastpastofthepast at gmail.com if you have show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi. I love that. You can also message me on Facebook if that's easier on the social medias. I love to read some of those responses on air. You can find the show notes at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave an iTunes review if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to learn more. Thanks so much, guys. See you soon. 